So, gang, um, I don't know why I said that contemptuously. I didn't take it as contemptuous. I thought we were being brought into something secretive. Like, oh, okay, oh hell, yeah, good. part of a gang. That's, oh. that's good. I made myself laugh with my own contempt earlier. I was playing, um, we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, uh, Suicide uh, Squad to kill the Justice <laughs> League. Mm. Um, by the way, a little bit uncomfortable that I played Silent Hill, the short message, and Suicide Squad in the same week. <laughs> uh, as, uh, as someone who also did both of those, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just sat there, Echo was there, and I'm always showing off when Echo's around. Um, and I just was interacting with Penguin in, in Suicide Squad, <laughs> and I just went, right, time to go see that dickhead Penguin. And for some reason in that split second, I loathed the penguin with all of my heart and then burst out laughing because I had no reason. To. I've got no quarrel with with Oswald or indeed any of the cobble parts. Sometimes, you know, you put, you put a bit of yourself into a situation and, and there yeah. you are. I would love to put a bit of myself into the penguin. Oh, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Oh, so many. Such a craggy face that man's oh, got. Oh, God. The things I'd do if I p- 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 picked up a penguin. Um, <laughs> that's a great reference. Do they still market penguin? I'm getting very distracted today. Uh, the point is, is I've got to keep my volume down so I can't actually do my opening bit that I had planned, which will be a great relief to Conrad and Laura, <laughs> as it involved a, a vision I had for the world healing, getting better, uh, that started with Weird Al Yankovic, uh, naked, hunched over, masturbating. And I can't really do the voice, because I don't know if, if Conrad, Laurie, you've known me long enough, if you've ever picked anything up about me. I like to get a little bit loud. Um, somewhat animated, yeah. Somewhat somewhat zesty. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, a little bit Optimus Prime when I... Um, <laughs> that meant nothing. Um yeah, when I perform, I'm exuberant like that. So I can't really, the, the whole, hey, do it if you try, do it, come on, I know you can. Just <laughs> Weird Al Yankovic supporting himself emotionally uh, while hunched over. This is like like latter day Weird Al, you know, no facial hair. So you could see the sort of um, uh, violator from Spawn mouth. <laughs> tall, sort of oddly muscular, like frame, a little bit Tommy Wiseau ish. Um, just yeah, on his on his knees. <laughs> I believe in you, um, and I reckon that'd heal the world if that went out on uh, Paramount Plus. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to answer your question, Steph, as best I can tell, they do still use the pup-pup-pick-up-a-penguin uh, tagline. Oh, beautiful. In order to find that out, I had to dig through the Wikipedia page for Penguin Biscuits, which did lead, in, lead me to reading about the uh, the 1996 lawsuit between uh, McVitie's and Asda, uh, where they accused Asda of trying to pass off their Puffin Biscuits as part of the Penguin brand. <gasps> I've never heard it. I love, I love Puffins. Like yeah, apparently there. in in 1996 there was controversy that Asda might be trying to make you think that puffins were penguins in the biscuit wars. That's amazing. Oh, by the way, when I said I love puffins, I've never eaten a puffin bar in my life. I no, you actual... never eaten a knockoff penguin. No, they're just, they're just penguin. They're just knockoff penguins. Like Asda won that that particular lawsuit, but they shouldn't have. They are just knockoff penguins. Right. They're very clearly that. <laughs> yeah, I I just um uh was talking about the bird. I got very excited remembering that puffins <laughs> exist. Puffins they're just are ridiculous. a good bird. I think it's puffins that 
are one of those birds where they're really, really social creatures. Um, and we know this because there were little... Uh, scientists were trying to do studies on them, and they had, like, fake puffins with cameras built into them to record what the puffins were up to. But they were just on, like, a single metal strut rather than a pair of legs. And the puffins started standing one-legged because their new puffin <laughs> friend was looked like it was just standing on one leg. And they were like, I don't know why we're doing this, but our new friends stand on one leg. Let's do it too. Wow. Puffins are just like that. <laughs> Amazing. That's adorable. Right, puffins are good. Love puffins. P- second favorite bird, probably next to two, yeah. like like just just under toucan, um, which reminded me because toucans are involved in it. I was like telling you all, just like shit's been rough lately, and I've been like I've got the depresso. But there was one interesting bit of good news I did have. One of the games I'm writing for, I, I got the part of an, in an audition to play my own character that I've written for the game. mm Hmm. So that's an interesting thing that happened. Get, getting to win an audition to voice something you wrote is a weird experience, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like, I was asked, like, if I'd try out for it, and I was like, okay. But, like, the game has, like, like proper, like, TV and film voice actors Ooh. in it. So I didn't want to, like, I think I'm shit. So I, I said I'd try it, but they seem to like it. I see my my one of those was weird because it was auditioning to be the audiobook narrator for my own book and I had to be like I had to convince people I was the best person to read words I'd written about my own life <laughs> or for someone else. God, that reminds me of a show I've been watching to cheer myself up actually, which I have to thank Conrad for turning me on to. Mm. Uh Nathan for you. Oh, it's oh. so good. I had like I've been so like miserable and I the within five minutes of putting on Nathan for you, the the ice cream, uh, the the what was it the the frozen the poo flavored frozen yogurt yeah poo flavored the moment he said the flavor poo <laughs> yeah I I burst out laughing despite how miserable I was. It's a very you show. Yeah no it's 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 one of those things that uh, uh, watching it I was like oh they managed to put on television the things that we've been trying to do for years on some level um, <laughs> yeah and yeah it's really really good welcome to Polquisition we're yes. here we, we've yes. got video games we've regrettably played some this week some more regrettably than others but well, um, well, well. I mean some particularly regrettably yeah should we start with that silent fucking hill game? I don't mind. I don't mind doing that. No, not at all. I don't know what the general opinion is because I've been so wrapped up in my own like stuff that I've not really been interacting much online. From what I can gather, our opinion is not maybe not a minority, but certainly not a majority either. It's not universal. Yeah, it's a more divisive game than I'd have imagined. But then. I guess I forget that Bloober also has a lot of supporters, so this game, which isn't as offensive, would probably have even more defenders. I've been looking a bit at the the, the response to this, and I think a lot of people have shared our response. Our response is certainly not unique to Silent Hill, the short message, but I think a lot of it comes down to how much familiarity do you have with some of the topics being approached, and therefore how aware are you of how poorly 
some of these important things are just kind of being thrown around. Yes. Like, how much of a reference do you have for this is tasteless versus, oh, that would be spooky, isn't it? It's, it's, too, it's too bad that's not, I'm glad that's not a real thing. It's just a spooky thing in a story. Yeah, it reminds me of, like, several other controversies or discussions about games, like, going all the way back where, like, is this offensive to a certain group of people? And then a lot of people that aren't in that group of people, like, have no experiences <laughs> about what's being trivialised or, or or insulted. They seem to have really, really strong opinions about just how not yeah. uh, offensive, tasteless, or, or harmful it is. Yeah. So, for anyone who knows nothing about this, um, I'll jump in and, like, give a quick overview, because I know you did your, your big Jimquisition episode this week I about it. I did a video on it, um, yeah. Yeah, for anyone who's just listening to this and has no idea, uh, this was sort of surprise announced and released uh, during a, at the end of a State of Play presentation last week. Uh, this is that one that, if you remember a couple of years ago, some concept art leaked, where everyone was convinced there was going to be a British Silent Hill, because a woman had a bunch of insults written on her face, and one of them was the word Minga. Minga. And people outside of the UK had to learn what a Minga was. Mm-hmm. No, apparently this is set in Germany, uh, of, of all places. Uh, they did remove the word Minga from the actual game, it seems. Which is a shame, because I'd love it to be full of, like, full of, like, the British insults that I sort of would hear slung about yeah. when I was a kid. Like, you like a wank professor! Like... <laughs> it would have helped it to feel a lot less fucking generic in its insults, yeah. which is a big problem it has. But it's like, maybe three-ish hours long, a first-person looping narrative, and... Usually I'd be hesitant to talk about spoilers for shit, but this is a bad piece of media, and I do not feel any shame in, in spoiling it. Content warnings up front. The game that we are going to be discussing tackles themes of suicide, potential suicide glorification, and child abuse from a parent, and those themes are not particularly subtly handled, so uh, head heads up for that. But this is a game that has some interesting ideas, but does not deal with any of them with the kind of nuance they would require to be good. Yeah, I would like mental illness to be portrayed in a way. And look, look, in past works, like way, way, way back, like I've indulged in like negative tropes of, like involving mental health. And I've often like enjoyed games and media that are a bit shit. I was a big Outlast fan, you know, back in the day. <laughs> and that there's all sorts you could say about that. But it is just so overplayed. And, you know, as someone who, like, like accepted all of their bullshit, like, it's just, I want to see one that isn't a cartoon. Yeah. I'm done with this, like, this trivialising shit. Yeah. Especially so because it comes with the arrogance of, of a game that thinks it nailed it, when it, it yes. flew so far of the mark. It has a lot of problems, like... To talk about some of the problems in the abstract, um, I think particularly the very first loop the game does has a real problem with exposition dumping and being very, very unsubtle about how it tries to world build at you, largely through, here's a newspaper that's going to tell you about what what's going on in the world that's meaning that uh, parents are being more abusive to their children and, uh, oh, maybe that'll come up in a minute. Like, it's not fucking subtle. The two words that I ended up using to talk about this, like, the morning after I played it, was trauma tourism. Yeah. Because 
largely, this game does not have anything interesting to say about the topics that it brings up. What it does is bring them up and go, isn't it spooky? Wouldn't it be bad if that real world thing happened to you? And then just kind of lingers in those things and doesn't really do much with them. Yeah. And it's so, like, over, like, makes such a ridiculous, cringe-inducing melodrama about it. Yeah. You know, parents screaming at their kids about their haunted pussies. Like, it's just yeah. fucking ridiculous. And, like, mad cackling. Like I wish that was a fucking exaggeration, but it really is not that far from the fucking truth, the screaming about the fucking you haunted You put pussy. a curse in my womb. Like, it's... And then just... Like the fucking crit keeper. But that's a great example because that that silly cartoonish moment is the culmination of 15 minutes of honestly quite serious, like lingering, we're gonna trap you in a loop of one room watching the slow decline of a household and these children being more and more like neglected by a parent to the point of, of disaster. Quite serious material quite like directly lingered on for a while and then it ends on a fucking ah my haunted pussy fucking monologue (laughs) it doesn't know how to wrestle with its own tone and half the time it's just replicating traumatic shit and half the time it is being cartoonish about that same traumatic shit in a way that is hard to reconcile yeah yeah look i can only speak for myself and there are people close to me that have described similar things. Hmm. So almost all the time I see mental health displayed the way the short message does it as all of these disembodied Ooh. voices screaming and screaming. And I'm not saying that that isn't a thing, but I so rarely see the representation of how in many people's minds, and this is true of me, it's your own voice uh, internal, obviously, you know, internalizing stuff, which I I very rarely see the internalization. I agree with you, but I think I understand pretty well why they don't do it that way yeah. here. The one game that I did see do it well was the, the God, I can't remember the fucking name. Black and White RPG, also about looping. Oh, in Stars and Time. In Stars and Time, uh, yeah. that had the internalized self-loathing. Yeah, and some of that like really hit home. That did. I fucking wish I fucking remembered that for for the video because mm. that really is like that one. That was a gut punch that actually landed because I'm yeah. like, holy shit! I talk to myself like that. Yeah, with the short message, I think a lot of the reason that so much of the like bullying messages are so generic in this game and are externalized rather than internal thoughts of self hatred is because they really, really, really want to have a twist a few a few loops in. And if it was internalised self-hate, it would have to be specific. Because there is a specific thing that the character feels guilty about, and the game does not want you to know what that, that guilt centres on. Yeah. Which is why the bullying has to be, like, incredibly generic and not specific to any particular insecurity, and it can't be her thinking about the thing she feels guilty about. Also... Just because, like, like some of this stuff, it's just cooking with me what someone might say in response. Mm. Yeah. Because someone might say, well, you know, Silent Hill is um, almost always externalised versions of whatever's internalised, you know, uh, whether it's James Sunderland's guilt. But the thing about those games is it's baked into the environment and in the monster design, into the surroundings, it's almost like Silent Hill itself 
takes on their entire subconscious or, or, or you know, whatever um, feeling is most, like, whatever strongest negative feeling they have, or whatever theory you want. Whereas the short message spells it out and just just replays the abuse and screams it at you with no allegory, no interpretation. That's the thing, is I think it's usually, there's usually a layer of abstraction and a layer of, it's going to, in hindsight, be really obvious what it was that was haunting that person, but in the moment, the connection won't be so clear. And specifically, the thing that I think really stands out to me, uh, comparing this to other Silent Hills, in terms of that lack of clever, thoughtful abstraction, is the monster. <laughs> Heavy battle. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there in a second, because you look at something like Silent Hill 2. Initially, you're not going to have any fucking frame of reference for what Pyramid Head is or represents. And that is going yeah. to be like a lingering thing that like, once you have context, you'll go, oh, I understand what we're getting at here. In fact, they sort of almost misdirect you with some of the lore. Like you see the painting in the, the historical building uh, society of them as executioners after you've already seen it. So it's like, oh, this is just like a monster from Silent Hill's past. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, that's just what it looks like. Whereas this one is, well, there's that girl who keeps talking about how ch cherry blossom petals, how, like, they're beautiful, but they're also beautiful when they fall, and suicide is beautiful, therefore. And because she it, she talks about the flower petals as the suicide thing, oh, the petal monster's coming for you. I wonder what that could represent. I, I, I mean, she fucking spelled out the metaphor. It's, uh, it would be, it, it would be beautiful if I killed myself is the fucking metaphor. <laughs> It's not much of a metaphor, she she repeatedly lectures it at you. Yeah. Monster design, just while we're on that topic, in Silent Hill in particular is such a lost art. Like, the last Silent Hill game I truly liked, and I am aware I am in a minority opinion, was Silent Hill Downpour. And that was in spite of its biggest flaw, which was the monsters were just almost, almost one thing, the whole game. There were... A few deviations in areas. But for the most part, they were just guys. They were just like humanoid, yeah. pr vaguely prisoner looking things. And, you know, Silent Hill 2. And it's funny because when I was a lot younger, I thought they looked stupid. And it wasn't when I was a bit uh, until I was a bit older and I, I played the game properly all the way through and really appreciated it. And now it's some of my favourite. It's subtle what they represent. Like you have to, you squint a bit, and then you're like, "Oh, oh, I see," and it means something. And that weird gloopy look, you don't see that. Silent Hill Three, a little more detailed with its monster design, less sort of blobbish, but it still had that sort of weird grey black slick sort of look to it. And then from there, it was just Duan Monster. Here is an monster, you know? I miss that sort of... I, Silent Hill 2 especially, that monster mm. design of just... Everything means something, but it's not It's not written on its chest. Some of the, the stuff this game wants to say is literally written on the walls. <laughs> yeah. And the stuff that was written on the walls in Silent Hill 2 was, you know... Even if sometimes it wasn't subtle, it at least took on an air of, of cryptic sort of meaning. There's a reason why people really like that uh, picture of the wall that just says there was... I don't remember the exact quote, but it was like, there is a hole 
there was a hole here, it's gone now or something, uh, which just means something later on. Whereas this one really is just, it might as well just break the fourth wall. Yeah, we, without getting too much further into specifics, like my, my big fundamental problem with this game, I think, is that none of the things it's trying to tackle are fundamentally bad ideas for a Silent Hill. No. I think that you could tell a Silent Hill story about someone who is struggling with the sort of all-consuming nature of social media and the sort of demand to feel validation from there. You could talk about the way that if someone commits suicide in a way that sort of glorifies that and puts the idea in someone's head of this could have positive results, that can lead to copycat suicides. None of these are inherently bad ideas for Silent Hill, but the problem is, like, this is a story that needed to be told with a chisel being told with a sledgehammer. It, it is not told with any of the nuance or subtlety that you need to tell this kind of story correctly. Yeah. It, so much of it feels like someone from the outside going, ooh, wouldn't it be bad if this happened to you? Mm, you wouldn't like that. Oh, that would be horrible if it happened to you. Without really focusing on the internalised experience of the person going through it. Yeah. And that has always been something very fundamental to Silent Hill, is it is about really luxuriating in the internalised experience of the person going through it. And the series has rarely felt as outward-looking in voyeuristic as I feel like the short message yeah. feels at times. That aside, there are moments in this that I thought were visually very interesting, like, there's a twisty red corridor at one point that I thought was like, eh, your yeah. art team did some, some some neat work on that. Yeah, another thing I did forget to say in the video, the one sort of compliment I had for it, some footage of it was shown in the video. You look in a door into, like, what might be a washroom or, or a larder mm. or, or, or a trash room because it's full of trash bags. Two trash bags are moving. It's also full of flies. And one is moving almost like a twitching sort of cat. One that isn't necessarily even dying is just sort of trapped the way it's just sort of twitching almost scared while the other one just sort of like almost breathes that little bit was creepy like it was no weird spooky fetus in the bathroom sink like in pt no but like there were moments like there are moments like that you can point to and go you know there were moments worth experiencing there yeah i guess there was one musical track as well that sounded a little bit like, old-school Silent Hill, and that was nice for a minute. It lasted less than a minute, I think. And then you pair that with uh, that fucking chase sequence at the end with the fucking Slender the Eight Pages I bullshit. I hate Eight Pages bullshit. Uh, it is possibly my all-time most loathed horror trope. I don't fundamentally hate the idea of, like, those chase sequences. The narrow corridors to feel claustrophobic, on paper, I think that's fine. The thing that is chasing you that won't, re won't relent, I don't theoretically hate that. But the yeah. problem is, that thing is so close on your tail at all times and never fucking, like, more than a foot behind you, yeah. it feels it like. it becomes obnoxious, not scary. Yeah, it becomes obnoxious specifically because if you accidentally run into it, you have so little time to, to, to react or one-hit kill. And as soon as you start adding in having to go and find things in this labyrinthine environment, the problem becomes... I'm having to run through this place so quickly, I don't have time to stop and take on board where I have and haven't been. I don't have a split second to go, have I been through that door? What number's on it? Can I remember that number so I remember I've been in here? There's no time to take in the space 
And it just leads to frantic running because you're like, I've, I've found five of the photos. I just need to keep running. It's more important I do that than I actually find the, the remaining photos. Because if I die now, I have to redo this. So yeah. I'm just going to keep fucking moving. And, you know, the more you're harassed by the monster, the less scared you become of it because you just keep seeing it. And you become overly familiar with it. Like, there's a reason that by, like, the fifth movie, Freddy Krueger was like, Oh! You like comic books, do you? What if you were a comic book? And then turned a boy into paper and cut him up. Uh, <laughs> rather than did anything, like, actually scary. Let's be honest, that kid's fashion sense is what killed him. <laughs> yeah, he was he was doomed from the start. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, you can't be scared of something forever the more you're exposed to it obviously there are real life exceptions but in media barring ex- like actual like proper phobias you can only be scared of something for so long you can only be scared of a monster you can only see it so many times until the goofiness of it comes out one of the the smartest things the first amnesia ever did mm-hmm. was it was damaging to look at the monster which was great because the monster looks stupid as fucking hell. <laughs> That's like a classic Call of Cthulhu thing. Like observing the horror, it, yes. it you know it, it drives you mad because you can't comprehend it, and that yes. so that's a good conveyance of that idea. Mm-hmm. Amnesia, a machine for pigs, just went ahead and had some ones that were invisible. They just like splashed about in water, and that's how you knew where they were, and mm. it was fucking scary. But that series understands. Well, with the exception, I think, of, of um, that one I didn't like. Um, but the bunker as well has the monster more visible, but does its best to sort of dissuade you from looking at it or, or keeps it in the dark. Um, that series is really good at understanding uh, that getting like a full glimpse of your big silly monster, which again is why I like the Silent Hill 2 monsters, is because there's something, there's always something vague about them. Mm. there's no real details the most detailed is probably like next to pyramid health the most detailed is probably the nurse but that is just faceless just this horrible sort of like vaguely mashed human head like those things still squick me out because they're not just trying to like startle you and and like like Mm. chase you around screaming they're just staggering out the dark at you Yeah. yeah like it's a shame but making it this weird jittery thing. Someone compared it to the cornflake homunculus. Just <laughs> when you see its outline for the first time. Yeah. It's really not that far off. It's so creepy pasta. Like I could see it like like next to like some of the low tier stuff, like camera head and shit like that, you know. Flower face or heavy petal, as I've dubbed it. Like it looks so Oh, hey guys, I found this diary in the woods about the flower girl. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, Silent Hill's short message. Pretty rough. Yeah, uh, not correct. What about you, Conrad? What you, what you been playing this week? Uh, I have been playing Yakuza Like a Dragon all week. Ooh, it's pretty much the okay. only thing I play. Yeah, yeah I, I, I want to make it clear... I was not going to start with Yakuza Like a Dragon. I was going to go straight on to Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth. Um, and, you know, then I, I changed my mind and it had nothing to do with not being able to get a working installer for Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth. 
to run on my <laughs> PC. Hmm. Um, I, but I put in quite a few hours. Uh, I have not made a lot of story progress, I don't think. I get that sense <laughs> yeah. because uh, I'm locked at like rank two bond with only one person and nobody else can advance. So I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. But um, I've also been getting fixated on filling out the uh, part-time hero quests and finding all of the yeah. enemies in locations that are specific. And then and then figuring out what enemy it is I'm supposed to be targeting, which is – I like this element of it in that they give you sort of a, a vague type of person that you're looking for. But there's actually a specific enemy that falls into that category. And you have to figure out who they are based on where they are. And I yeah. I like that. That's simple. But it just requires a tiny, tiny bit of detective work that makes it feel valid in some way. Hmm. Um, the main, my main takeaway from Yakuza Like a Dragon is I really appreciate how it, like, talks about sex work and sex workers. Right? Like right, the more you get into this game, the more it really, really leans into some quite good sympathetic discussions of sex work. And it's not just sympathetic descriptions, but it's we were talking about uh, saboteur a couple of weeks yeah. back, and how your base of operations in that game is in the back of a French bordello. And so every mm. time you come in or go out, you see all of these dance dancers. In various states yeah. of dress. This, you go back to your home with your friends and you eat something, you know, and it just, and that it's just the place you live. It's not there to yeah. titillate you. And in fact, the reason you're there is, is to keep that place open and viable, but yeah. you almost never interact with anybody there because it's just the place you live. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I, I love that it's not, it's an aspect of the society. It's not shy about putting it front and center as being a thing that is in the culture and, and significant to this sort of uh, criminal underworld that you find yourself in. And yet at the same time, it never does that in any sort of prurient interest. Um, mm. You know, a little bit of, a little bit of humor from, from time to time. I'm still rocking uh, a Hitachi magic wand, or I'm uh, sorry, legally distinct from Hitachi magic wand. Yeah, yeah. Everyone does early on. It is. It's. It's one of the best weapons. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> and that sh that should exist. There should be a sense of humor yeah. where these things are concerned, but it's not at the expense of sex workers. You know, yeah. and I love that. I just adore it. I think that's so great. I think that sentiment really does carry through a lot of this game. A big part of this game is about standing up to a specifically, like, pretty gross puritanical group that are pretty insistent on, oh, we've deemed you're not a desirable part of society, we want to, you know, scrub you out of the world. And that sort of fight back against that, I think, is really well represented in how a lot of groups in this game are treated, mm -hmm. and how their existence is treated as a part of the world that your main point of interaction with is to go, hey, they're not lesser than you, stop hassling them. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, it doesn't need to be more than that. 
And I really like that relationship to the world. I agree completely. I think, I mean, it's very much a standing up for the little guy type of, of situation. And I appreciate that. The character has just so much heart and and is so relentless in his uh, positivity that that's yeah. kind of infectious. It's it's hard not to fucking love Ichiban. He's wonderful. He I really is. Yeah. I've gotten into the kart racing, but just a little bit, but I think that's my next focus <laughs> once I get through. I still have to go, like, solve the mystery of the Soapland guy. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, but, but, but I could be part-time heroing and kart racing. That's the thing about this series, is, is I am constantly torn while playing it between, like, yeah, I want to know what's next with the big, very well, you know, very dramatically paced, uh, big, big dramatic mystery. But there's so many little things I could be doing, though. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to be doing all those little things. And it's it's fine, you know, the big plot will be there when you get back. Remind me, because uh, I've, I've played other games in the franchise, and I don't, I don't know that I, I've actually finished any of them. Bleach Japan is a recurring villain, aren't they? They were in, like, Yakuza 3 or 2. They've, they've shown up in little ways in the past. This yeah. is the most prominently okay. they show up. Alright. Yeah. Yeah. They amuse me. I, I think that, that they're very well written in terms of the way that they're like initially very much just a little nuisance, but you're like, I could see how you could become a big problem real fast. Yeah. I think they walk that line really well. Yeah. Anyway, it's a good game. I will I will probably play through this whole thing because I'm just so into it and wanting to see where they take some of these mysteries. Yeah. It really is the first, it's the first Yakuza game that really got me to go, I I understand what this series is doing. Well, do you think it's the turn-based combat that does that? I don't think it's even necessarily that. I think for me, as much as I love Kiryu, the protagonist of all the previous ones, he is, he's a very stoic character yes. that takes a long time to open up, to soften up, to show his softer edges. Like a Dragon is the one that really got me hooked in, and then I went back and properly played the, the earlier ones after that. I needed the mix of where the humor versus the uh you know the the openness of the character versus the seriousness. I needed the mix that like a dragon has yeah. to get me sold on this world because Ichiban is so instantly lovable. It's really easy to buy in on him very quick. Whereas with Kiryu in the earlier games, I think you have to get quite deep into some of the early Yakuza games to start seeing Kiryu soften his defenses a bit and be that character you start wanting to root for. Well, what's interesting about this character of Ichiban, Yakuza, at least the first game, almost felt fish out of water. Because you have this very stoic, very serious lead protagonist, and there is just so much weirdness in the world around him, and he feels both of and not of that place. Ichiban mm. feels of this place. Yes. He is just as weird and energetic and vibrant mm. as the world around him proves itself to be, which I, I think yeah. works really well for it in its favor. And this is why, talking a little bit about Infinite Wealth unspoilery, Kiryu and Ichiban spend a lot of, of Infinite Wealth together. Mm. And I think Kiryu works really well as part of a double act with Ichiban. Oh, I bet. I think they play really well off of each other. And as much as I do love Kiryu, I think I needed, like, I needed that instant buy-in that Ichiban gives 
to later go back and go, let's let's play these games where I'm going to have a little more of a slow burn to some mm-hmm. of that. Well, I mean, going back to the, the turn-based combat element of it, because for me, that's the thing I think that's going to ultimately let me finish this game. Mm. Because it's it's not that the combat in the Yakuza games is bad, but there's not that much to it. Mm-hmm. And it gets pretty tedious the longer it goes on. Whereas this, I pull a trigger and it just does the fight for me in the turn-based right. mode. And that takes care of a lot. Like this, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother with this part-time hero shit yeah. of wandering around a neighborhood trying to find the specific enemies that I need to do combat with, because I would be bored of doing the combat. But by yeah. removing the need for me to actually do the combat against low and mid-level enemies, I can just move on quickly, get it over with. It it doesn't drag because I'm having to make a whole bunch of decisions. It just does it. Yep. And I again, inf- Infinite Wealth, I think, really leans into that well. I think it learns the right lessons from that. Uh, there's a whole, like, if you reach a certain level gap above enemies in Infinite Wealth, you can just pull a trigger and you don't even have to watch the fight play out. That's great. You watch one swing happen and every enemy falls down and you just win. And it's like, cool, you learned the right lessons from it. Um, yep. That's good. I like that a lot. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to keep playing it, but I'm enjoying myself. Um, what about I'm you all? Glad to hear you, you're getting into it. Um, I'll very quickly add a bit more in on Infinite Wealth, because that's the main thing I've been plugging away at still. I am, like, 70 hours deep into Infinite Wealth, and that game's luster has not gone down at all. I am absolutely gripped by the core narrative. I have done... I've done the thing where every time that side content opens up, I've just binged it straight away. So now I'm in, like, the final act of the narrative with very little side content left to do, and I'm just kind of doing the main plot. And even at times where I've been able to see certain things coming, the delivery has been so top-notch that I have not cared. I am a thousand percent in on this. This game is everything I want out of a video game. It's it's really delivering. I keep being surprised by the scope of Infinite Wealth. There's the the big new Hawaii map that I spent most of the game in and was like, yeah, I think I have a scope on the size of this game. And then whole other maps started opening up of entire other areas that I won't go into specifics of. The scope of the game just doubled at one point, and I was very excited about that. Yeah, Infinite Wealth, I, I really want to get it finished, but I I am having too much fun with all of the stupid side content stopping me from progressing, and that's how, that's how this series should be. Steph, I know you've played something else this week that I've also played. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I can't say with this game that I've not been pro- progressing because of side content, because it's all side content. Um... <laughs> Suicide Squad, Eat the Justice League. It's there. Uh, That's for damn sure. It's not the worst game I've ever played. It's one of those games that you can play for a while, uh, quite a long time even, become sort of invested in that loop. But like with Pal World, we said the other week, you realise after a while, I'm getting no emotional investment out of this i'm drowning in loot i'm in the menu half the time micromanaging it feels really stodgy the gameplay flow because it's constantly interrupted with uh dialogue 
after every mission and then the unskippable little loot box thing opening up and then the like rest of the results screen and then you get the dialogue thing that you can't pause or skip or even get off whatever roof you're standing on until they've stopped yapping. Also, what just while I'm grievancing, sorry, I hate so many of the missions that have those arbitrary like damage restrictions, like only grenades mm. do damage. Uh. The grenade one especially. Especially when it was these big monsters that take more grenades than you can carry to kill. And the only enemy that's around that you can get grenades from are the snipers that teleport as soon as you get near them. So you've got to wait and then counter them, stuff like that. But yeah, sorry, I realised I I really got ahead of us because we haven't even described what the game is. I mean, what what is the game? It's it's part his his a narrative follow it along a very limited path, and then it's part big empty open world go do uh live service yeah shit. it really is a shame that the the city is so lifeless and mm. there there are no civilians or anything it's all just these mutant aliens that are quite boring you know they're, they're not interesting to fight or learn about um because how often do you get a game set in metropolis much less an open one you know we've seen gotham plenty of times from this studio from this series as as you know elements of of suicide squad make quite plain that this is rather cutely set in uh, the same universe as the arkham stuff which i love the uh their explanation as to why batman's still knocking about there's a museum display that just immediately says after he revealed that he faked his death he was asked to join the justice league and then that was it just moving on um like fuck arkham knight's big sacrifice (laughs) but you know i'm on board with that just fuck arkham knight in general uh yeah open world and and you know we never see metropolis and Mm. you know i'm not a massive dc mark i like batman villains uh i don't know a lot about superman but i am you know metropolis is a very different place atmospherically to gotham but they really did make it feel like a a worse gotham city it's it's a worse gotham city because you don't have the whole it's the bat style henchmen Mm. it's just these like really like they remind me of the fucking lambent from um gears of war like Mm. such a step down from the locust it's like them but no personality these whatever they're called i can't even remember these alien things they're like that. There's just nothing to them, and and it sucks to see such a lifeless metropolis. Yeah, it's. I've played a chunk of this, and I don't hate the game when I'm in the narrative. Like, there's that opening couple of hours where you are largely just sort of doing plot stuff, and plot is happening, and I don't hate it. I think that like there are moments where i enjoy moving moving about and doing doing the combat and it feels satisfying enough and while i'm sort of just being taken along for the big roller coaster ride that it is it's fine and then you know that that opening couple of hours is one of the longer times that that lasts but beyond that it's any time the plot stops happening and i'm just sort of dumped in that big open world again that's when that moment, that that moment, that similarity to Pal World catches up with me. Mm. It's that moment where I stop and I'm like, now I'm back in that big world and I don't know why I care about saving this empty world full of nothing. Yeah. 
like, do I want to go do another generic kill the things on a rooftop mission and have my character show up at the end of the mission uh, because it's trying to do the who was the most valuable player of the mission co-op screen, but you're the only player, so it just flashes <laughs> your character up for no reason. Like, do I want to do more of that? No. No. If you could make me just a like a single player version of this, where I literally just go from the plot mission to the plot mission with nothing in between, I'd probably play through this start to finish. But I don't care enough to to do that. Yeah, I'm so numb to it. Part of it is I'm just numb to all of these like live servicey fucking looter shooter games in general. But like the amount of loot and crafting and upgrades and modifications and shit that it just throws at you endlessly on top of like loot that like so many of these shooters are just the same few guns over and over again with slightly different sort of stat tweaks and shit maybe you know an element or something it's just i'm numb to it like i'm going along with it like i will press this button to make this gun better but it's just this linear it's like the fighter in yeah. D D, just this linear path up uh with nothing really exotic going on i do like the well i was a bit awkward with it at first but i've come to like the different feelings of the traversal for each character i agree with that i i, I think once you get get to grips with them each of them has satisfying aspects of how you make your sort of Essentially, they're all, how do you do a big jump? But they all feel distinct in ways that I think work. Like, King Shark moves very similar to, like, if I remember correctly, like Hulk, Incredible Hulk from mm. like the old school games. Yeah. Holding down this button and jumping super high. Yeah, sort of big d- 45 degree angle leap. Yeah, or one straight up, which there is a, um, there's an upgrade later down on those otherwise sort of un- mostly underwhelming skill trees that get him to like maxed out crackdown heights and distances. And that's quite satisfying. It's a little confusing playing him just because he doesn't have as robust a mid-air option as the others, like, because they all have one. And that's a ga- an issue the game has overall in that it's overcomplicated itself so much. Mm. Clicking the left stick to dodge is not intuitive oh. at all. No, it's not. That is the worst idea I've I've heard yeah. of right. controls in years. It's so bad. It's such a fiddly button. It's so easy to accidentally depress it or not depress it and move in the direction you want at the same time. Oh, God, why? It's, just, it's not intuitive, and you can remap the controls, but because of everything else the game's given you, to essentially do like like really basic third-person shooter shit, but they've taken up all the other buttons uh, with all of the flippy-doos, by the time I tried to map them, I was so used to everything else, I didn't want to change it. So all I've done, and I've still got to reload to a save point to actually see it work, I've just had to swap the sticks around and hope that right-clicking will be more intuitive rather than pressing circle to dodge, because I'm used to that in games, or, like, mm. one of the triggers to dodge, or, or a bumper or something. Like, it's just not. I'm not used to it. But there is almost no room for it to go anywhere else. And that is something this game has as a real problem. Yeah. It's a mess. It's fucking chaos. Battles are... They're not unfun at times. They can be, you know, somewhat satisfying. 
most of the time, again, just numb to it because it's all the same shit and the same few mission types over and over. And they're really long-winded missions. They're so... Mm. They're almost like a boss in, in like, fucking Grand Blue Relink or something. Like, just these long, lengthy fucking mm. grinds. But yeah, they're enemies zipping about and so much shit flying at you and special effects and prompts and it's like they've tried to marry a third person shooter to like the batman arkham games with the countering and everything but when you've got like these snipers like that can shoot you i saw one that was almost a speck on the screen it was so far away they can shoot you and disable your traversal thing which the combat is trying to be built around but there's so many like controls and so many different ways to get about that it gets confusing. And the the mini-map is not great. And the enemies, sometimes, they're just hard to see amongst all of the, the shit going on. And the fact that combat is, is multi-level, because they want to encourage the traversal system. So there's a lot of um, verticality to it. Mm. So you're looking up, you're looking down to try and find these fucking things that keep running around, <laughs> and some of them really do run around. They do. It's a fucking nightmare. Like, it's got a decent... The default aim assist, at least on consoles, I can't speak for PC, it does a decent enough job of trying to keep track of stuff once you're looking in the direction of where stuff is, but mm. just keeping that going. And the enemies, they're about the same sort of size and that as... Uh, the other Suicide Squad members, barring King Shark, although some of the bigger mm. ones give him a run for his money. So there have been times where I'm like, I see this thing and I like go to shoot at it, but it's like Captain fucking Boomerang or shit like that. So yeah, combat is a fucking nightmare. Captain Boomerang's way of getting around, like his whole sort of mid-air, zoomy sort of stuff, that's really good. I like yeah. that, throwing the boomerang and then warping to it and then zipping about, like... They did that really nicely. There was also a really good joke involving Superman at one point where uh, he stops a, a nuke from going off and then Captain Boomerang. And obviously the Justice League are bad in this game. So Superman stops the nuke, saves everyone, but and then Captain Boomerang's like, fuck yeah, it's Superman. Oh, fuck, it's Superman. <laughs> um, that was really cute. There are little lines here and there that are quite fun. There are times where I've genuinely enjoyed the, you know, it, it's what you expect out of a superheroes but evil uh, narrative in that it's like, the snippy one-liners are what they are. I found them kind of charming at times, you know, yeah. I, I think that I think they've differentiated these four characters well and they have found a fun dynamic for them to, to do yeah. as a group. The only real issue with that is Amanda Waller Great character, but not when she's your mission control for hours and hours and hours, just yes. berating you and calling you an expendable piece of fucking garbage. That's not good middle management. That's not the good way to get results out of your, you know, your, your, your subordinates. It's like, I get that it's the character, and it's fine in a comic book, and it's great in a film. But when it's directed at you for hours, <laughs> it's the same feeling I get from, like, when I complained about it in Starfield, where you're walking mm. past NPCs and every other guard is muttering something snide about you. Like, it's that just that constant. I, I get enough 
negative reinforcement elsewhere. I don't need it in my games. Agreed. It's like Gollum all over again. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Conrad, what about you? You played anything else? No, it's pretty much just been Yakuza. Uh, is that everything you've played, Steph? Yes. I was going to go over those Smashlings I talked about the other week. I've got them out yeah. the box. I've been playing with them. Yeah. But I, this is not a visual medium, so people can't really look at them. And B, who the fuck cares? One's a hippo. One's a spray paint can. One's a griffin. That's a rare. Uh, one's a unicorn and one's a one-eyed robot. That one is actually rather endearing. And then, of course, I've got the two in the eggs, but they're not here. One's a pink bear. Uh, that I think is some sort of special. And then there's a silver robot, which I know is uh, one of the special ones. So. Ooh, uh, fancy. Yeah, they're rather <laughs> appealing. Like, they are sort of cute. And I, mm. I am a sucker for this shit. The Roblox thing is still weird. And, and just that cynicism. I love that you found what you found when we talked yeah. about them before. Yeah, they're so perfectly designed. They are very transparently exactly the thing they are. Yeah, part of me respects it and fears it. (laughs) I think fear particularly is a very sensible feeling to have for it. Yeah, I might start worshipping them. Oh, we've got a bit of time for some news, so I'm going to throw a couple of stories out here quick. I don't know how how aware either of you are of this, but there's been some... some rumblings going on with Xbox the last couple of weeks that have gotten... People who were a little too invested in Xbox as an ecosystem a little concerned. Um, So this sort of started, like, late January, where some rumours started floating around online that a couple of Xbox exclusives were going to be published on other platforms. Uh, Specifically, Sea of Thieves and Hi-Fi Rush were both rumoured to be coming to PlayStation and Switch. This gained a little bit more traction because there was recently an update for Hi-Fi Rush and people data mined it and there were some new t-shirt designs for the main character, one of which is red and talks about playing anywhere and one of which is blue and talks about like, oh, what a surprise it is. And it seems pretty clear those are like PlayStation and Switch announcement t-shirts. So it seems pretty clear that very soon at the very least Hi-Fi Rush is going to get announced for PlayStation and Switch despite being formerly an Xbox exclusive. And then this past weekend, everything kind of ramped up a notch. We started seeing rumours floating around that Starfield was being planned for a multi-platform release. Indiana Jones, the new one from Bethesda, was getting planned for a multi-platform release. Hellblade 2 being planned for a multi-platform release. Gears of War apparently being planned for a a multi-platform release. Hmm. The next Halo being planned for a multi-platform release. A lot of people with actual credible track records all at once started coming forward going, yeah, I've heard this This formerly Xbox exclusive might be showing up at the very least on PlayStation, if not Nintendo too. Hmm. So I think one of the things that we should all try to keep in mind is that Microsoft's track record with hardware sucks. It's always Agreed. sucked. There's uh, one, I, think, I can think of one hardware success that Microsoft has had. And it's Xbox. That's Mm. it. It's the only physical product that they have put out that they have been able to actually make money on and sustain. And if I were them, I would be thinking my luck's going to run out. 
Like, Xbox One already is not as successful as Xbox 360 was in terms of garnering market share and so forth. And and they've been looking towards an all-digital streaming system forever. Mm. So this sort of seems inevitable to me that they would broaden out to other platforms. And Xbox was, even from the beginning, they they were trying to capture the living room. You know, they were trying to mm. be a a hub for other software applications that's in the in the entertainment space that's what they wanted to do so i would not be surprised if the next xbox is um light on hardware like the next mm. proper release is light on hardware and they go all in on streaming and just ditch physical it's an interesting situation this i think there's some degree of fairness to this people who like had enough money to buy either an xbox or a playstation and chose to buy an xbox being a bit concerned or a bit miffed off by this and basically going, is it about to turn out that I should have just bought a PlayStation instead because that's going to get all the games I care about too, plus other ones Xbox isn't getting? And I've seen a lot of people assuming that this means, like, day and date, all Xbox games will come to PlayStation, you know, same release date, and it's the death of first-party exclusives on Xbox, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's necessarily no. the right way to think about this. I think the way to think about this is if you look at PlayStation yes. the last year or so bringing their games to PC. Absolutely. That's what this is. Now, Microsoft, I think, is possibly less invested in having a console because, again, they are primarily a software company. And frankly, all of the you know game console manufacturers at heart are software and service companies. They produce a console, but that's not where they make their money historically. Nintendo accepted for being the way they are. But that's not the model, and, and it hasn't been. I think there is something to be said for Xbox wanting to have a box that you can buy that your Game Pass library all works yep. on. That, like, anytime they put a thing on Game Pass, it will run natively on the box. And, you know, they want to have that. But, yeah, I think this is going to be a very PlayStation to PC thing, where it's like... Six months a year, maybe 18 months after a game releases, uh, PlayStation brings it to PC. Yep. And the reason they do that is, A, because if someone hasn't bought a PlayStation for that game in that 6, 12, 18 months, they're not likely to, and they still want to make money off of those people who would want to play the game but don't want to buy the hardware. And B, you maybe you just bring the first game in a series to a new place People get invested, you then release a sequel for your console and people go, ooh, I did really like the first one, I'll buy the console to play the sequel. I think it's probably one of those two situations for Xbox. But the fact that Microsoft hasn't talked in any official capacity about this has led to a lot of catastrophizing and it's been really fucking bad for PR for Xbox. A lot of people who have bought in on that ecosystem are feeling very slighted. We do know a little bit about something to do with this officially. What we know is Phil Spencer from Xbox is at some point next week hosting an Xbox business update event to talk about the reports that have been coming out. Now, I have my theory here, and this is not backed up by anything solid, but I have my theory why we don't know when this business event is coming. Nintendo always has a Nintendo Direct in early February. Mm -hmm. Next week would be bang on track for when we would, like, just looking at patterns, expect Nintendo to have a Direct. My gut instinct is Hi-Fi Rush is being announced as a shadow drop for Nintendo Switch in a Nintendo Direct next week. And that until that announcement has been made, 
Xbox is contractually obligated not to talk about this shift in business direction because they have agreed for this to like they have signed something with Nintendo that this will be a big reveal in the Nintendo Direct. That would be wild if Hi-Fi Rush shadow drops twice. Right, but considering that like the the the, the Nintendo Switch t-shirt for the character is already available in the game files, yeah. it feels really it feels really plausible it might just shadow drop on Switch. And that that's probably the thing holding them back from doing this business event, is that they have made an agreement that Nintendo gets this cool shadow drop moment in the Direct. And they also can't announce when the Direct is yet, because Nintendo has to do that. Yeah, they won't announce it till 48 hours in advance, so until that's known, they can't, you know, they can't give that away. That makes sense. So I think that's kind of what's going on, so it's going to be interesting to see how Xbox tries to message this. Because right now they've got a lot of people who bought in on their ecosystem going, should I have just bought your competition instead? Would that have been the better decision? And that is messaging that they really need to get on top of as quick as they can, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's been an interesting thing to watch this unfold, but it really... I think the thing that's most interesting is hearing, like, Starfield that has barely been out very long at all... And then hearing, like, some of the franchises you definitely think of as Xbox things, like Gears of War and Halo being in conversation. It's going to be a very interesting world if seemingly none of Xbox's franchises are off the table of potentially showing up on PlayStation. That's an interesting world we might move into. Yeah. I don't know if that says anything interesting about them being less accused of being a monopoly. Well, that that could be. That's... the companies they've bought up, their games do eventually still come to other competing platforms. That's the thing. I think that they are still somewhat concerned about the antitrust implications of their market share in, in streaming yeah. services. And that absolutely is, I would think, factoring into this decision. I think it would be very interesting if Microsoft and Xbox made a real shift towards... You get the game early on Xbox, but it will eventually come to other competing platforms. Therefore, we're not a monopoly. That's our excuse to buy up more studios. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Maybe by the time next week's Podquisition records, we might know what's going on with that. My suspicion is we won't hear about this till Thursday or Friday, so it will probably be after next week records. But we'll keep an eye open and see what happens. We got some more information about the day before. Do you remember that game we talked about a few weeks back? The, uh... Most most wishlisted game on Steam that oh, launched yeah. <laughs> and within a day or so turned out to be nothing. There, there's some reports of uh, pretty bad treatment of workers on that game. Oh, yeah, yeah, not not so funny. No, uh, a German PC gaming outlet called GameStar and a YouTube channel called Game Two published a report based on the testimonies of 16 former fantastic employees one volunteer and seven employees at publisher Mytona, talking about some pretty horrid stuff going on at the company, including toxic management, particularly by uh, the company's co-founders, a lack of direction, punishments being imposed on employees, employees being fired over basically nothing with no warning. In one instance, two employees were allegedly made to pay a fine of $1,930 for turning in low-quality voice recordings. There is an internal work chat that seems to show um, one of the company's founders announcing an employee's dismissal due to lack of will. (laughs) Yeah, there were programs being used to monitor employee productivity, 
workstations were being monitored when staff were working from home, and employees could be contacted at all times, whether or not it was during working hours. They were working 16-hour-plus days with no weekends, and often being made to throw out and redo work because the bosses didn't really know what they wanted. So they would get people to make something and then change their mind and throw it away and make them make something new. That blows chunkazoids. It's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. It's not great. It's, it's not great. Bad working conditions led to a not great game. The, t- the two of those both are things that happened. And we've got one last story. Square Enix is going to review how they make games to make them make games better. They're going to they're, 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 they're gonna improve the quality of their games, they promise. Right. They're gonna make they're gonna make better games. That's that's their big decision for the future. We're gonna make games but better ones. Was this a problem that Square Enix was like facing? Like has there been a marked drop of quality in Square Enix games? They're always panicking about something. Square Enix is always finding something to be dissatisfied about. They're not gonna say that their games were dropping in quality, but they sure are gonna focus on improving quality in there. Well, games. I mean I'm just asking, like, because I, I don't I don't remember playing much of anything Square Enix put out in the last couple of years. I think the last Square Enix game I played was Final Fantasy Remake. Was yeah. it Remake? Yeah. yeah, Remake. I keep forgetting that the new Remake one is out really soon. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a demo out now of the first chapter of the next one that carries Wait, your save data over. Why am I here talking? Yeah, as of last night, you can go play the first chapter of the next one and you save data carries over. I missed that. I'm going to do that. Yeah, which means, yeah, we are bloody close to that next one. Mm -hmm. But yes, these were comments made by Takashi Kiryu, the president of Square Enix, um, during a financial results briefing. Bloomberg reported on this and said, basically... We want to have a policy of reducing outsourced development and focusing on large-scale games that we develop ourselves to try and boost both the quality of our games and the profit margins. Yeah, the price. That's what it comes down to. We want to reduce the cost. Yeah, so starting in April in the new financial year, they're going to make games themselves and make them better games. Well, we're not gonna we're not gonna make other people make the games because then they'll be that's what makes them be bad. We're gonna make them ourselves and then they'll be better. I mean, this does bode well because for a long time Square Enix uh, almost seemed addicted to just announcing games. They'd announce them years and years and years in advance, almost like they were addicted to just like saying the ridiculous, stupid names that they give their games. And I did a Jimquisition on it, and we're talking like super old school pre YouTube Jimquisition mm. about like constantly announcing things. But this is back when they were, like, quite good. And I think bringing it back internally, the way I'm picturing it is this. It's that old adage, you can have it cheap, fast, or good. And if they're doing it cheap by bringing it in-house and to up the quality, it will take five years after a game's announced to come out, which just gives us the old Square Enix of old. So this is a good move. <laughs> Unless the games come out fast, in which case we're fucked. I'm not going to trust anything Square Enix says about their future plans, really, at this point, because they say a lot about their future plans, (laughs) and everything everything they've said the last couple of years has added up to, what if we sold off all of our franchises and then realised we didn't have enough diversity of franchises, and what if we (laughs) bought real hard in on NFTs and then realised NFTs weren't the future? Like... They're not really committed to any of the plans they make, and they change their mind about them real quick, so... Yeah, I can't disagree. 
But yeah, there we go. That's 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 the bulk of the new stuff this week. Cool. Well, yeah. it's certainly this this podcast is not the bulk of the content you do, Laura, because you do so Me. much. And and if you'd love to tell us about it, I'd love to hear about it. Oh, I do a bunch of stuff you can find on the internet at Laura K Buzz pretty much everywhere on all those social media platforms you might find me on. Uh, that includes Blue Sky, which is now you don't need an invite for anymore. No, so if you're God looking for a Twitter replacement, you can just get onto Blue Sky now. I am at Laura K Buzz over there. Um... This week I've got an accessibility video going up on YouTube about, uh, not that I think a one console future is reasonably realistically likely, but given all the people going, oh my god, are Xbox going to drop out of the console industry? Just having a bit of a chat of, if one of the three console makers did drop out of the industry, what would that mean for accessibility? And playing around in the space of what does a shrinking industry size in terms of, like, major competitors mean for the accessibility space and it's a it's a fun little episode it's different to the normal ones i do but i hope people uh check that out it'll be up on friday um other than that go check out the new season of dice funk which is currently airing season 11 i believe it is um i am on half of that season i'm on the wet team episodes the first of which is going up this upcoming weekend you will get to meet my character who is a big muscle dumbass fish lady who uh is is part of a riddle-based religion, and I fucking love her. Um, she's a paladin of riddles, essentially. There's your little spoiler for, for the upcoming weekend, and I can't wait for people to meet this really fucking stupid character I've, I've been playing. Uh, what about you, Conrad? Where are you on the internet? Oh, you can find me at Conrad Zimmerman on Instagram and Blue Sky. You can hang out with me on Twitch, twitch.tv slash thatconradzimmerman. You can buy anti-capitalist propaganda that I make at mercenarycreative.com, and everything that I do online gets supported through Patreon at patreon.com slash fistshark. And you know who else has a Patreon? Stephanie Sterling. Yeah, patreon.com slash jimquisition. Um, the only place you can find me elsewhere at the moment is just like being quite poorly and unwell. Uh, so we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.